the underlying current that I, I found my Asian identity kind of bringing forth in career is family. And I think that that sense of larger family units that you often see beyond just like brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and, you know, siblings and second cousins and et cetera. For me, that kind of transcribed it a little bit to say, okay, like, you know, we're a division, we're a product team, we're a small startup, we're in it together and we're going to go conquer this battlefield and win. And all of us are going to win together versus, you know, one person winning, so to speak. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Today, we're excited to speak with Harpal Sambi. Harpal is the founder of Magical, a software company that helps non-technical employees automate repetitive tasks and be more productive. He founded Careerify while in college and successfully exited the company to LinkedIn in 2015. He then spent four years as a product manager at LinkedIn and Microsoft and left in 2019 to become an entrepreneur in residence at Bain Capital Ventures. In this episode, we spoke with Harpal about his upbringing in Canada and his entry into entrepreneurship while in college. What it was like growing up with parents who worked multiple jobs and how that impacted his mentality as a startup founder and why he believes people should be vulnerable in their interactions both personally and professionally. Harpal, thanks for joining us today. We usually start our podcast by asking, what was your favorite dish growing up? And so what was that for you? It could be something that your parents made authentically at home. It could be something else random. We've had a, a number of different funny answers to this. What was your favorite dish growing up? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. My favorite dish has to be hands down like an Indian dish, which was, um, it's like a potato filled roti called an alu paranta. That was by far like my childhood, like every Saturday food that I would eat because I was actually a really picky eater. I hate onions. And if you think about Asian food, specifically Indian food, onions are in everything. So um, I gave my mom a lot of fits. So if she hears this podcast, sorry, mom. Uh, but that being said, it was, you know, the one saving grace where, you know, she would not put onions in, in, the, in these rotis and I just would eat these things at nauseam. So I would say hands down, that would be my favorite dish. Did you have uh, the typical Indian mom or Indian aunties just feeding you way too many parantas than you actually needed? When I would when I would start eating parantas, they would give me like three or four, and I would beg to stop eating as many, and they would feel bad when I would say, "I don't need any more. I'm full." It was a constant pressure, in addition to having a lot of butter. So it's like you know they you know the the quarter sticks that you would get is typically what you'd put on like two of those. So it was like it felt like almost like the the roti was like a side. And the butter was actually the primary dish. So yes, I, I kind of do agree with your sentiment there. Amazing. And side note, I made ghee for the first time a couple of weeks ago because we made this like biryani from scratch. I'll send a picture later. So when you said butter, I was like, ah, oh, yes, that, that brings back very fond memories. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you grew up, you know, what that family looked like, where you guys grew up, 
were there a lot of people who look like you around you? And what was that like? Yeah, so I, I grew up in an Asian city called Toronto, Canada. If you probably comp- take East and West Asian together, they're probably the majority of all of Toronto. I think it's like the most diversity in the world. Uh, can't forget Drake. Don't forget that. Drake, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I now need to rep Beaver and, you know, Celine Dion and, and Degrassi and everything else in between. But, you know, for, for me, I felt like diversity was like, became a superpower. Like, you know, you, you, you would have friends where you'd eat goat curry, Jamaican patties to like, you know, a Greek dish of some sort or whatnot. So Toronto was just a phenomenal city and it still is a phenomenal city. I call that like kind of like my transient first home, second home. We kind of go back and forth between the Bay Area and Toronto continuously. So I grew up in Toronto, you know, had two older sisters. I was the youngest in, in my family, which depending on, you know, where you are, whether you're the eldest or youngest, the youngest often is considered to be like very, um, you know, they're spoiled. I actually was not spoiled. My sisters might think I was spoiled, but that means that I wasn't. My parents, they, they were immigrants from India and they, they kind of had two, three jobs each. And they went from like single digits in their, their, in their pockets when they first came to India to then going into, you know, uh, the ability to buy a home and then put their kids to school, kind of like the typical Asian uh, dream, so to speak. And I want to dig in a bit on this Indian American, Asian American, Canadian too, <laughs> dream that you alluded to earlier. You mentioned that your family consistently worked two or three jobs to support your family while you're you're growing up. Mm-hmm. What was that like for you growing up in a household where your parents were constantly hustling and worked two to three jobs consistently? Yeah, I mean, I think it impacted this mentality of like working 100% and just giving it you're all and hitting a goal. Like there was no like ifs, would have, could have. It's just like, you just do it, right? And you do it at all costs. And there's a lot of cons on that as well, right? Because like, if you think about it, it's the conventional story that was brought to me as well. It was like doctor engineer, right? Like, and I, I ended up choosing engineer because there's less number of years in post-secondary school than a doctor. That was like the only rationale around how I made that reason. But that being said, like, you know, their goal was to have financial security, buy a home, pay it off, put their kids to school. And that was their dream, right? And, and as a result, they kind of worked backwards and they said, okay, in order for us to do this, we're going to have to like make this much. And, you know, even though that salary full-time job isn't going to unlock us this, that means we need now need to do second and third jobs as an example. So they hustled, right? Like my dad, nine to five was a tool and die maker. At a manufacturing shop weekends he built basements nighttime he was trying to build a light shades business uh, or lampshades and then he you know, started helping a friend with the machine shop so like he kind of went in and out but the overarching goal for both of them was like financial independence and just making sure that their kids had a great upbringing where they had choice so to speak so i, I think that that has still kind of that transcended their generation to mine where at all costs like I am just like, when, when I put my mind to something, it's just like, go, just do it. And, and you mentioned that you chose the engineering career path uh, out of the doctor and the lawyers that your parents were maybe providing for you. And I know you, I know that at some point during college, you uh, started to also go into entrepreneurship. Were your parents excited about that, given that your dad was going out there and starting all these businesses and um, helping people out and, and, and seem quite entrepreneurial himself? Or were they kind of averse to that? 
So I, I took electrical engineering and went to the University of Waterloo, just like an hour west of Toronto. I was the prototypical back of the, you know, back of the classroom student. In fact, if at all, if I was even in the class, like I was never in the class and I would, you know, cram and get my marks just to get my marks to say, hey, I got my degree and I was out doing something else, whatever it was. I, I think the conventional career path was always there. And I think they really wanted me to do that. And surprisingly, even though my dad did try, you know, one thing, entrepreneurship is actually not part of our family at all. Like uncles, aunts, you know, sisters, cousins, like they're, they, they're not, it's a little bit foreign. Um, so they've taken more of the, like the typical approach, which is still correct, right? Which is just like, you work at a job, you build your way up and you work hard. So I actually, you know, did the conventional thing, which was engineering did the conventional thing, which is get enough good marks to get into a good school, did the conventional, I, like, I think I had like an amazing bio data, you know, uh, you know, think of it as A plus, so to speak. And then it fell off the rails when at 19, I said, I want to do entrepreneurship. And I truthfully struggled for five to six years of my first journey in my startup at CareerFi, which was a, a software company. I bootstrapped it completely. You know, my parents were my only form of funding. And imagine like immigrant family that focused solely in their life as financial independence. And every Thursday I would have to ask them to make payroll. And I made no revenue, right? So it's like, hey, mom, dad, I need to get $4,000 or 6,000 or whatever the numbers were at that time uh, to pay this, you know, these employees. Like they just didn't understand that. And they didn't understand of like, why are you sinking in more and more money and you're not making money, right? Because I think if they saw entrepreneurship, it was more of like the traditional sense where you buy and sell, like your cost of goods you buy and then you have a profit versus like this whole kind of weird paradigm of like software engineering, internet businesses, like you focus on growth, like that, that was completely foreign, right? So every Thursday I had to like prep myself for two hours or three hours of the conversation. And, you know, you have you know, conventional Asian parents saying, what are you doing? Work at Microsoft, you know? And it's funny enough, like I, I did come full circle on that dream of my mom, right? Because, you know, career I got bought by LinkedIn, LinkedIn got bought by Microsoft. And the next day I was like, hey mom, look, look, I'm actually working at Microsoft. But that being said, you know, it, it, it was a struggle, you know, as it, it gave me a strong appreciation of value for the dollar or value of a penny because I had to stretch it and I was completely bootstrapped. And I think only after when that acquisition happened, they accepted that you're unconventional or you're looking at unconventional like career paths, so to speak. Yeah, it ties back to this whole idea of the Asian American dream, right? Where your parents had their own vision of what that dream looked like. And yeah. you come along and have one that's vastly different and probably goes against everything that they think is necessary for a good life. And I'm sure that was a really hard conversation with them. So I, I'd be really curious to hear how you navigated that. And moreover, like how you navigated within yourself, this appetite for risk to take the leap to be an entrepreneur and have that uncertainty when on the side from the background you've told us, you also have a family who's working two to three jobs to support everyone. You know, how do you navigate that? And how do you, how'd you make that decision process? I think they, they kind of overlap, in my opinion, those two distinct questions. You know, if I take question number two first, which is just like, how do you create that inspiration Well, and, and that appetite of risk? You know, my, my whole thing was just like, I often questioned how things worked, right? Like I, I looked at a big building 
in downtown and I'd be like, what's this big building all about? Right. And, you know, you'd get a story of like, oh, that's where all like the big shots work. And I'm like, what is a big shot? And, you know, you kind of still question and question and question and you start to kind of figure out that, you know, the way that in order to make great opportunity and to, to make your, to make your life vision work, you have to work hard, but you also have to take really, really big risks and big risks typically in the professional world is entrepreneurship, right? Like you can make a really good path and you can become financially successful taking the conventional risk. But if you 10 X your risk profile, and as a result, there's a high likelihood of failure, but the small sliver of success equals big financial outcome, then few people take that and, and, and drive that and, and take that road. So, you know, for me, I think it was all a calculus where I was just like, okay, like I have superpowers I have a lot of weaknesses, but like my two super, three superpowers are like curiosity, creativity, and just like hustle and just asking, like, just, just, those are the three things. And I looked at it and I was like, curiosity and hustle just don't really work well as superpowers sometimes in corporate jobs. It works in certain scenarios, but for me, I said risk profile, we take entrepreneurship, go after it to make financial outcome, and then use that vehicle for good, whatever good means, you know, to that individual. So I think that's how I kind of devised it. And then how I prepped for those conversations every Thursday, you know, was another story altogether. Like that, that, that became really challenging because again, it was one of those things where my parents specifically who didn't understand the, the minute details of technology and saying, well, we added a hundred users and they're like, what, the, what does that mean? Like, are you, are they paying you anything? And I'm like, no, but like they're they're we, we got more people and we got more data and they just didn't understand that. Right. So for me, it was really kind of like consistently sharing the vision and them being unwavering, exceptionally great parents where they're like, okay, if this is your dream, we will give up our dream for your dream. And as a result that like that, that is the only reason I'm, I, I'm here, right? Um, because if they didn't have that, then, you know, CareerFi would not have been in existence. We would have folded a long time ago and all stuff. I'm, I'm curious how you, how exactly you prepared for that meeting and if that helped you in other meetings with investors and, and other employees. And did you have to make like a one pager? Like, were there certain questions they would always be asking? Like, did that, did that preparation for your briefing meeting with your parents help you for the rest of your career a little bit? Yeah, I would often create like meticulous slides and OKRs. That's a little bit of a sarcasm and jokes there. But I, I think it specifically, it got me thinking about how to spend a dollar. And I think that is such a great life value to have overall, but it became minor and like very, very detailed. We're like, okay, like you're spending this much money. Where is it going to? And I'm like, I'm going to this, this, and this. And they're like, well, are these people working 50 hours, 60 hours a week? Right. And I'm like, yes, mom, don't worry about her. Yes, dad, like, don't worry about it. But like, it, it, it's um, in a way, like it be, made me very detail oriented. And at the same time, before I pressed by, I would question it to be like, can I do this on my own? Which in a way is a disadvantage as well, because you just, you, can't, you sometimes are not unlocking scale. Like you're just like, I'm just doing repetitive tasks and all that stuff. And, and, and you're, you're not doing high value things, but at the same time, uh, it, it really made me appreciate the dollar, so to speak, and stretch it to the nth degree and then some. You've mentioned this mentality and mindset about how can you 10x something? Like, how can you 10x this uh, entrepreneurial venture? How can you 10x your career? How can you 10x uh, even this podcast? But then you're also mentioning this idea of being really aligned with how much money you spend, 
having a, a higher appreciation for for the dollar. How did those two in your mind kind of come together? I think it ultimately kind of came back to like low hanging fruit. You know, you, you assess the lay of the landscape and you're like, for this dollar, what can I do that can maximize it? And often it may not necessarily be a 10x, it could be a 2 or 3x, because in order for the 10x, you need to like invest more, you need to get more employees, you need to get more whatever it might be. But that being said, it gave me discipline to say, well, okay, this is what I have. This is what this, this is all that it's available to me, right? I, I'm not venture funded. I'm not angel funded. I'm bootstrapped. I needed to rely on at that time, my parents in order to float that, that company. And then eventually when we got customer revenue, which was like the best of, of all forms, because then I could show them that, Hey, like, you know, your investment is starting to, to come forward. You know, we were able to make bigger bets, so to speak. But I, I think that's like how you kind of have to lay it. It's just like, okay, this like this 10x vision, great. It could work potentially, but we don't have the resources. So let's stop dreaming and let's just start doing and, and let's focus on the stuff that we can do in our hands. And that clearly paid off. <laughs> You've had you know an amazing exit. You've had so many experiences over your career journey. And I'd be really curious to learn throughout this journey and through all the different stages of selling a company, raising money, starting your own startup, trying to recruit new employees. How are some of the ways in which your Indian American identity or Indian Canadian identity, how is that tied into this journey in different dimensions? I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. Uh, one word, negotiation. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I have to joke on that, but I'm sure there's a the customer that probably has like heard me saying like for you, you got the best price or something on that. But, you know, I, I think, that, you know, what the underlying current that I, I found, you know, my Asian identity kind of bringing forth in career is family. There's a big sense of commitment to families. And as such, I view building teams and companies the same way, right? Like we're more tight knit than the usual team and company, right? Like we want to understand people. We want to celebrate successes and failures. You know, if something's happening in their personal life, if they want me to know, I'd love to know, right? And vice versa the other way, right? Where it's like, like you know, we're completely open. We're, we're having vulnerable discussions and all this stuff. And I think that 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 sense of larger family units that you often see beyond just like brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and you know siblings and second cousins and etc for me that kind of transcribed it a little bit to say okay like you know we're a division we're a product team we're a small startup we're in it together and we're gonna go conquer this battlefield and win and all of us are gonna win together versus you know one person winning so to speak that to me, it was like the first and foremost, like biggest thing that came up was just like the family concept and bringing that into the professional world. Yeah, there's so many virtues that our Asian identities bring to a professional world that I think we don't talk about enough. So thanks so much for sharing that. And conversely, have you found that they, there were any obstacles or challenges that you found in your path that were due to your identity or your upbringing or some of the values that you carried? You know, I, I think... Um, Initially, I probably got blocked a couple of times on just like, you know, scale and hustle, right? Because I think it's like one of those things, at least in my family, given that we didn't come from a very strong financial background, we just did it all ourselves. Even though you could have found someone that's, that can do it a lot better, you would often do it yourself. I only learned that like after, you know, my second, like second and third companies that I started building versus just like the first one. CareerFi was the first one where 
you know, for me, I was just like, cool. Like I have to do marketing. I have to do sales. I have to do this. And, you know, as a result that kind of hindered me in my development where, you know, the trust factor where, where you can just blindly trust people and say, okay, Angie, just do this because you're, you're so much better than that. Because again, the cards that I dealt with were, you know, at least in my first business was, you know, bootstrapped and you just got to get shit done. Right. And the way that my family taught it was in order to get shit done, you have to just like do it yourself versus spending salary and all that stuff and increasing that debt to potentially get it done. So I think that that was kind of like the, I would say first and foremost, like the obstacles that I kind of saw was just like not sharing the duty, so to speak, a little bit more that I ideally like to, which is radically different in terms of what I'm doing now in, in, in my, my latest venture. And I want to tie this back to a couple of questions ago where we discussed your relationship with money and how you want to 10X everything, how we think about bets in terms of the expected return versus like the risk profile that we're taking on. And from what I'm hearing, it, it makes sense that you were more hesitant to take someone on and bear that cost to potentially scale up the business a bit. And it makes more sense to take all that burden onto yourself. And it reminds me of this idea of like time versus money. And back then it sounds like you had this paradigm of mind that your time was less valuable than the money that you have to put out to get someone else to do something for you. Totally. And it sounds like that paradigm is completely flipped now. So walk us through a bit of that journey. Like what, what changed? I, I think it was like, and you're completely right. My variable in life right now is all time. And I value time and I just don't care about money. What I usually tell people is be passionate in what you do. And if you're so passionate in what you do, eventually money will come because people love people that are passionate. So I, I think just generally what has changed is basically valuing that uh, and this is like super meta, what I'm going to say is like, as long as people are not dying, everything's okay. Because I think we, we, we tr sometimes get stuck up on decisions in life, in a job, uh, in a situation, whether it's like a, a, you know, financial situation, personal situation, relationship, whatever. And we stress about things all the time. But if you zoom in, like we can't remember the small stresses that happened a month ago, let alone a year ago. So for me, I, I, I kind of remember a distinct moment in my time at CareerFi where my biggest competitor got bought by our biggest partner and I was crushed. Like I went into like depression and all this stuff. And it was, it was a dark moment because we we're bootstrapped and we were really relying on the specific vendor uh, that just bought our main, main competitor. And Sure enough, after a couple of months, like we were okay. And it taught me a lesson of like, hey, don't rely on other people to sell your product, sell your product yourself. And as a result, we ended up getting like Deloitte and Unilever and Microsoft and SpaceX and Blizzard and all these really great customers for our product. So I think that that's kind of like the life motto that kind of has transcended a little bit between like the last 10 years is just like the realization that, hey, don't stress the world is what the world will be. And you know, whatever you are dealt with, it's, it is what it is. You're still going to live. As long as the decision doesn't have people's lives at stake, we're good. You know, let's, let's continue to live and let's be harmonious. So that's kind of like how that has worked. And as a result, it's like less emphasis on money and more emphasis on time. Because if you spend time well spent, so to speak, you're, you're going to love your life. I'm curious how this perspective has now shifted 
how you actually choose what the professional path you follow is and what, what the career actually is, given that this is like a wonderful foundation on a way to live life. How has that now changed your perspective on what you work on? And we'd love to hear even a quick background on, I know we've been speaking about Careerify. You mentioned you got acquired by LinkedIn. We'd love to hear a little bit of that journey and, and how this perspective that you just shared is shaping how you're thinking about what you're actually working on professionally. Now. Yeah, I think, you know, even with Careerify, I had this kind of belief that I still have today, which is anything that I want to work on, whether it's working on myself or working on with others, it has to have like a impact to society. Like I, I think the world of Instagram, but I would never build an Instagram myself if I had the ability of doing it, right? Because it's, it's you, know, you upload a photo and you, know, you do your likes and all that stuff. But the reality is, it's, it, to me, it's not moving humanity forward in a way. You know, Careerify was helping people get jobs. And that to me was a worthwhile mission to kind of quote unquote, invest six years or sacrifice six years of my life to kind of like help people get jobs, right? And um, to kind of pull back in, in terms of after, you know, my stint into product management at LinkedIn and, and also at Microsoft, came in entrepreneur residence of Big Capital Ventures, decided to kind of like figure out what I wanted to do, what I wanted to go into venture, what I wanted to go into entrepreneurship. And my body was just telling me that I needed to go into entrepreneurship again. I, I was so happy that we were able to achieve certain things at Careerify, but then I also was just like, I wish I also achieved so many more things. The latest venture that we're building is called Magical, so getmagical.com. And our whole focus here is to make people, specifically non-technical workers, more productive. Like every person that we think about in jobs, whether you're a salesperson, corp dev, recruiter, IT, finance, entrepreneur, if we're working on a computer, we conform to the computer, right? Like we go into and type things and do things, and eventually the computer gives us value, whatever the value is. And in my head, there's been so many times as a non-technical person where I'm like, why can't the computer just do what I'm thinking it should do? Like it has the capabilities of doing it. Uh, and that's what magical is. And, and we, we built it to kind of say, okay, people have repetitive tasks where they're, you know, they're doing things on a daily, hourly, weekly basis. And imagine if a computer can just be like, cool, I think I see you do this, Angie, maybe once a day, once a week, let me just do it for you. And all of a sudden that mundane repetitive task is gone and you start to love what you do, right? So I'm, I'm kind of taking the philosophy, personal philosophy of like, do the things that you love and forgo the, the crap that you don't want into this company effectively, where, you know, I want to empower that recruiter that hates to put manual entry of data, right? Or conversely, a salesperson that has to fill a, a sales tracking list because of the, their manager tells them to put something in uh, an Excel sheet or a finance person having to do quarterly reviews over and over again, or a customer success person doing this. So like for me, I, I, I kind of took that philosophy and I was like, let's build something that's more impactful for non-technical people because programmers can do anything, but non-technical people had that limitation. So we're kind of going into that movement to, to make really people exceptionally productive. I just requested access for the, uh, the magical wait list. So I hope to be bumped up on this uh, beta test list. So I, I'm excited to try this, to, to take it home a bit, Herbal. We usually close these episodes by asking our guests about advice. You've been through a lot in your career and you've experienced a lot of different settings from startup to founding your own thing to big corporate. Looking back on your career path so far, what would you say is the best thing you've done for yourself? And what advice would you then impart on someone who's starting on their career journey? 
I believe that for me, it was, there was two things that came to my mind immediately. One was being authentic and two was being vulnerable. When I was 22, 23, or, you know, actually I was 19 when I started my first company and Curify started at 21, I think. I was just like, you know, cocky, confident person, you know, go, went to a good school, have a degree, you know, and world's my oyster. And I see this often, uh, actually, this whole where we label ourselves or people label us, right? Which is like, oh, you're, you know, you're an entrepreneur, that, that's your label, right? Or, you know, you went to the school and that's your label. And we often then trick ourselves to become that label, right? And to act like that label. So what I meant by that is like, there were so many times in my early in my entrepreneurship career or professional career where people would be like, how are things going? And I'm like, great, things are going great. But inside there was so much stuff that was going wrong. And we would have this like massive armor that we wanted to shield ourselves because society had portrayed to say, you know, you have to have this shield of confidence and portrayal of like whatever the strength, et cetera. And eight days before going bankrupt at Careerify, with the result would have been my parents and I would have lost our house. And up until those eight days, like, so 90 days or maybe 120 days, I would start the same, do the same thing, which is like, try to sell the way that salespeople would sell, right? Always be selling ABC. And I realized, you know, I would say in like maybe days, 16 days before going bankrupt or whatever, I, I was selling to people in HR. So in my mind, I was like, shit, I'm going to go bankrupt. So I might as well get advice on how to close things up and whatever. And I was talking to a prospect that was that I've been dealing with for three years and she always loved our product. She loved me. She loved whatever, but she never bought. And I called her and I was like, Hey, Seta, um, I'm going, I'm, I'm about to go bankrupt. Uh, you know, we can't afford the next like two weeks and we're going to have to start closing down and all stuff. Like, can you just give me advice? And she's like, I never knew that this was happening to you. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's all good. Like, how do I make sure that my employees are going to get a good, like my focus was like getting our, our employees in a good state. And she was just like, hold on, hold on, hold on. And then, you know, two minutes of silence or a minute and a half silence later, she's like, check her email. And she signed a contract for $30,000. And I was baffled at first. I was like, she's my angel. And like, what just happened here? I just got like a month and a half of runway. And the reality that she taught me was like, you were being authentic and you lowered your guard. And I like talking to a human. And to me that stuck out. And I immediately kind of changed the tone that I had in my life. And if we can treat ourselves and treat each other as humans, and be authentic opens up the opportunities where people say, me too, me too, me too. And we've seen this in society in the last couple of years where we've seen the Me Too movement, we've seen like Black Lives Matters, we've seen a lot of things where people are raising their hands to say, you know, this actually has happened to me as well. And I think those two things immediately kind of come up to mind as like, don't try to fake yourself in terms of being someone else and be vulnerable. And when you do those two things, it just magic starts to happen at the end of the day. Oh, what a, what a beautiful way to end Harpal, you know, being vulnerable, especially for men is something that doesn't come naturally. And, and I love the part about mentioning about all these labels that people try to put us in. And that's, 
Angie and I's, one of Angie and I's visions of why we created the name Across the Lines as the podcast name, because we all, we're always put into these different buckets, whether it's Asian or Canadian or American or entrepreneur or product manager or father or whatever it is. But like you've mentioned, you can live such a better life if you're able to go across those lines and live in between all these different identities and not get stuck under one label. Thank you so much for coming on, Arpal. I really appreciate this. This is a great amount of time and I appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.